0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everyone. Welcome into uh, the podcast. We are in Luke. So we're getting to that home stretch. And it, once again, we're not going chapter by chapter, we're bouncing around. We're teaching how to look at themes. In the book of luke uh, just like we've been doing with all the other uh, books that we have been in and, and we'll continue to be in uh, Man, what are we going to do when we get to like jude
1: like <laughs> it'll be a short podcast <laughs> yeah a
0: short one like five minutes we're done uh but anyway what do we
1: want to um talk about or recap or, or you know before we hit into today yeah we're going to get into the heart of luke's story and i i promise you this is going to be fun uh, it, again it's going to be fun for me so i don't really care about anybody else but i'm going to have a lot of fun but i just kind of thought You know, it seems like we've just really been harping on this Jesus concern for the poor and the marginalized theme, and that some of you can be going, okay, look, guys, I get it. Can we move on? And my my response to that is, look, I hope that what we're saying on this podcast is really enlightening and encouraging and even challenging for you, and maybe 95% of what we say you agree with, and the other 5% that you're wrong on, that you don't agree with us on, but the other 5%. (laughs) I want to encourage the church to listen to voices that they don't always agree with, and even voices that they don't always like what's being said. And my thought is this we've been stressing Jesus' word to the poor and marginalized because this is what Luke is telling us. This is Luke's story. This is how Luke wants us to read Jesus. And remember, Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, a wealthy, elite person in Rome who has to grapple with this even more than we do, perhaps and the other thing about that is the fact that so much of the Christianity that I kind of grew up with over the last 45 years, I just think has missed this story. And so we've been harping on it because I think it's in the text. and this is what the text is saying, but also because I don't think the tradition that I'm aware of, is just really flushes out very well. And so if your tradition has done that, then awesome. That's great. But I want you to just kind of to allow us to continue to stress these points more, because I think that's what Luke does. And I just hope that, uh, at the same time, you don't get annoyed by it because I I think unfortunately we've just watered the gospel down so many, so much that we've kind of gotten used to this watered-down gospel. And when somebody just kind of launches Luke in front of your face like this, it's like it, it can be too much. And so I, I want you and me, Vinny, to recognize the fact that it, it it is coming across as too much for some of you.
0: And it's largely different when we study this way, when you do a book study and we're actually hanging out in the book, because I think as evangelicals, especially in the Protestant tradition and Protestantism is saturated in theology. Yeah. I mean, like the core of our theology is the five solas, which are theological constructs. And so we learn everything from a theological construct. And we oftentimes don't know what to do when we're just hanging out in a book because our first inkling is to then jump to another passage to see how something harmonizes or see a theological theme. And it's difficult just to hang out in the book itself. And, and that was something that was difficult for me, even in uh, seminary to really start dividing the difference between theology and biblical studies. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and you were helpful in that talking to me, like, you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm a biblical scholar. Like I'll let the theologians figure out how to put it together. Like, I just want to know what the text says. And I, I like, that statement didn't even really register for me at first. Uh, and it wasn't really until I was having to do that work and dive and say, Oh, I just can't jump to this other text. Yeah, You know, in my own church where we've been doing a 12 week series through Hosea <laughs> and, uh, and my pastor's really good about in- including biblical theology. So we look at a lot of themes, okay. but even there, it's like, man, of a what 14 chapters of however long Hosea is yeah, in, yeah. it's like, it's basically like 12 and a half chapters of, Hosea telling Israel, you're a whore. And it's like every week, it's like, okay, it's the same thing. Yes. It's the same thing, but you you can't just ignore it. It's there. It's the text. It's just as inspired of as the gospel of John or Romans or these other books that we have no problem reading through on a regular basis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How about this? I I would, let me add one more thing that. And I think one of the things that we're going to see tonight, uh, well, it's tonight for you and me is how we take these isolated stories And we isolate them from the text of Luke. And when Mm -hmm. we do that, we kind of miss how it fits into the story of Luke. And so that's what we're going to do tonight is say, okay, here's this story. You have probably heard it this way. Sure. That's what's there, but also understand that Luke is doing this with it. And you're going to go, oh my goodness, this Mm -hmm. is incredible Mm -hmm. what he's done there. And I think it'll hopefully enlighten uh, the meaning of the text. Which which, once
0: again, like I had a conversation with someone today who they're, discipling a new Christian. And so he, he, said, you know, this guy said, I'm taking through him through the gospel of John. Yeah, so yeah. I could, so I could show the, the deity of Jesus. And it's like, great. <laughs> like, it's certainly there, but yeah. like, first off it's like, like, I've always thought that was weird. Like, why do we always go to John? Like right. you, you're you going to start voice. off with a new Christian yeah. with, you know, you're going to talk about the word who was a God, but he, he is God. But he's not yeah, the I God know. who he's with. And then you're supposed to eat him and all this stuff. It's just like, what is going on with him? This book is so weird. Why wouldn't you start with Mark? But it's because as evangelicals, we really don't hang out in kingdom land. We don't know what this is. So we don't know what to do with something like the gospel of Mark. It's kind of boring. Uh, yeah. And so it's one of those things. It's, it's having the deeper understanding of some of these other dominant themes uh, and, and really just being able to hang out in the text itself without leapfrogging to some other hobby horse or something. Yeah, yeah. No, anyway, right. so we've made our way to Luke 17, but we skipped a lot of things. So, uh, w- you know, what do we want to start with today?
1: All right, so we're going to go back starting in chapter nine, and by the time you get to 9:51, and by the way, chapter breaks in Luke are perhaps maybe the worst chapter breaks of any of the biblical books because mm. there's so many times he missed it, or some often where Luke, like when we looked at Luke 15 and Luke 16, and it was kind of like one long thing, but you got to break it off at some point in time. So be careful about the chapter breaks, but. Uh, in 951 through 1944, uh, we talk about this as the travel narrative. And it's not so much of a travel narrative of, a, of the journey, but as much as the travel na- narrative of the destination. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Uh, for example, in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, It came about when the days were approaching for his first ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then again, two verses later, in chapter 9, verse 53, says he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. So it's the destination that's important. Uh, he's heading for Jerusalem. This is the key. That's going to be the focus. And of course, that means he's going to be preparing his disciples for what's going to happen in Jerusalem and for what's going to happen after he dies and rises again and for their ministry and things that they take over afterwards.
0: So an interesting thing happens here because James and John have this request to bring down fire on the Samaritans, uh, which is funny because uh, did, did you see any of the uh, Avengers movies?
1: Yeah. All, all of them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. So it's that last one, then end game and Thanos is finally looking to be defeated and he's telling like his, his spaceship thing. He's like rain fire, you know, and he's, he just wants them to shoot just completely wipe everything out, even though that means it's going to wipe out all his dudes. And it's funny because every time I hear that, it's like, this is this ridiculous claim or request he's making because it's actually going to do more harm to your people. And he just doesn't get what's happening. So every time I think of James and John, uh, like th- that's the that's the image I was thinking when Thanos says, that. "I'm like, oh, it's just like James and John. You don't get it. You're asking for this thing like raining fire. What what are you doing, man? You, yeah. you don't get the point of what's happening here yet, guys." Right. Yeah. Anyway, fact, it has nothing to do with Avengers. That's no, just no. You're right.
1: <laughs> but 9:54, James and John say, "Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume you know the, the Samaritans there." And Jesus' answer is, "You don't know what kind of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them." And the whole point of it is, as he begins this travel narrative, as he begins this journey to Jerusalem, the disciples clearly do not understand what kind of kingdom Jesus is about and what their mission in that kingdom is going to be.
0: So this kind of is one of the, you know, it's a really sad verse in the Bible uh, where we read in in chapter 10, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. (laughs) That's yeah. I,
1: I've always thought of that as one of the saddest verses in the Bible, That Hey, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I think actually that we're looking at it the wrong way. When we look at it, look at it that way. And this has just been a new transition for me to kind of think of it this way. And other, words, I've always looked at this verse in terms of a calling people to ministry. Look, the harvest is plentiful, but I don't have enough laborers out there. Let's call more laborers out there. And I don't think that's what the text is about. I think the text is about the result of their ministry. Hmm. In know it's, it's not so much a call to ministry as it is a call for more people to enter his kingdom. So as you go out there, call for the effectiveness of the, of the message to be, to be heard and people to enter into the kingdom. The, the problem then is that we we focus on the sending and Jesus is focusing on the receiving.
0: Hmm. Then in chapter 10, Jesus again, sends out his disciples. So this is chapter 10 verses one through 16, but he sent out. The 12 in chapter nine, like, why is he doing it again? This is, it just seems kind of strange. Is there something significant? We should look at it in this account.
1: So we're going to have a lot of fun at several different points tonight, but at the end of tonight, we're going to have a lot of fun. So just remember that in chapter nine, he sends the disciples out, the 12 out at the beginning of chapter nine. And in the beginning of chapter 10, he sends out the 70 mm-hmm. and both times they come back in the report. So let's look at one aspect of that journey here with the 70 but we'll come back to why does he send out the 12 and why does he send out the 70 and what's going on because both those episodes are going to come back up in chapter 22 mm. after the Lord's after the last supper there. So in chapter 10, he sends the 70 out. And then in verse 17, it says this, it says, and the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to subject to us and are in your name. And then Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall injure you. Hmm. And all of a sudden you begin to realize, okay, this larger biblical story that we talked about with Dr. Broadhurst, when we did the gospel of Mark study uh, is coming into play. The disciples are going out and as they go out and proclaim the kingdom of God, the kingdom of of God is coming. And as the kingdom of God comes, the disciples going, even the demons are subject to us in your name which is evidence that the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus' answers, yep, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And the idea of that is that no longer does Satan have the ability to enter the throne room. He's fallen out of heaven. So throughout the Old Testament, we see, not throughout the Old Testament, but on a couple of occasions in the Old Testament, he's, he's before the throne of God as the accuser. That's what he has role is: the accuser. And no longer now, the presence of the coming of the kingdom of God and Jesus' seizing of the throne by ultimately by his death, resurrection, and his ascension as well, means the enemy has been defeated and Satan has been cast out of heaven. Obviously, we're going to see this in the book of Revelation. Well, I was just going to ask, actually,
0: real quick, do you see a connection between this passage in Luke 10 and what happens in Revelation chapter 12?
1: Exactly. No question about it in my mind at all. In Revelation 12, if you're not aware that Vinny's alluding to, it says that there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, angels were waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels were waging war. And the dragon was not strong enough, and he was thrown down. The serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, he was thrown down. And so, and then it says, and because he was thrown down, it says, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath. And the question is like, well, when does that happen? And the answer is when the kingdom of God comes. Hmm. Uh, because... Well, most specifically, if he's the accuser of the brothers, that's what it says in Revelation 12. He's the accuser of the brothers that's been thrown down. Well, with the cross, Satan has no accusations left. Mm -hmm. You're letting these guys in without without an atonement prior to the cross. And it's just like, uh, sorry, atonement's been made. You're out now. And so, woe to the earth and the sea. Rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, Mm -hmm. because the devil has come down to have a great wrath. And so I think that Jesus is alluding to satan falling from heaven which you can say hasn't happened until the cross either way whether he's looking at this as a future event that's about to happen mm-hmm. or he's looking at this as an event that is transpiring and i say ing meaning this this continuous event and the point of that is with the coming of the kingdom of god satan has been defeated and that's why the, the disciples have authority to cast out demons in his name and then jesus answer and he puts in this larger we won't get into this tonight but this larger narrative of the war from the garden uh, where the serpent and the woman, and it says the war of the seeds, right? Mm -hmm. And the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, Mm -hmm. and uh, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head.
0: Genesis 315. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. And of course, Paul says in Romans 16, that we will soon crush Satan under your, under our feet. It's this cosmic battle. And I think we have to keep that in mind as we talk about, war around the world today, as we talk about uh, Christian nationalism, as we talk about being Christians in a, in a particular nation, we have to understand the fact that there's this cosmic war that's going on between the nations waging war against the kingdom of God and against God's people. And we win this war by loving and sacrificial life, love for the sake of, uh, of the nations. Hmm. So that's my sermon for today, but I reserve the right as a preacher to preach again whenever I need to. I was
0: gonna say, yeah, yeah, your one sermon for the day.
1: Yeah, exactly. One You're sermon. Your one sermon.
0: sermon for the first 15 minutes of the podcast. Yeah. So Luke 12 then begins to really stress for Jesus' disciples what it means to follow him. So what are some of your key thoughts from this chapter?
1: Yeah. So in this chapter, you have this long passage about a detachment from the goods of the world. So in verses 32 through 34 of chapter 12, it says. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen uh, to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give the charity. Make for yourselves purses, which do not wear out, of unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes in or or moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And earlier in the passage, he talks about, you know, why are you anxious about food? Why are you anxious about clothing? The same thing we see in Matthew chapter 6. You know, if God cares for the birds of the air, if God cares for the lilies of the field, will he not provide for you? And we read this and think, okay, oh, that's really cool. Okay. I just need to not be anxious about things. I need to, you know, not worry about food, but most of us as Americans that are listening to this, don't really worry about Mm -mm. food and clothes. But if we put this speech in the context of the kingdom of what Jesus was talking about to Theophilus and he says, look, give without expecting anything in return, the idea of giving for the poor and the marginalized and for the oppressed and it's going to cost you something and it and you may not benefit economically To you know, what we discussed a few weeks ago with the parable of luke 16. Uh, use the mammon of unrighteousness which uh, shrewdly and that is for give to the poor and the people who can't pay you back uh, the lazarus who sits by the rich man's gate because someday in eternity he'll welcome you into heavenly dwellings hmm. And if we take the gospel message of Luke carefully, we realize, okay, following Jesus might very well mean economic harm now. And because I'm economically um, disadvantaged now, because the things I'm doing right now aren't going to make economic sense. I'm not investing capital to gain capital. I'm investing capital to take care of people who can't pay me back at all. And then we realize, oh, well, then where am I going to get my food from? Hmm. And that's the context of Jesus saying, well, why are you worried about food? for me, this has just been really revolutionary. Like, Oh, now I get it because all along it's like, Oh, it's a good sermon. I shouldn't worry about food or clothing. Well, Hey, well, you guys want to go to lunch after church today? You know, right. It just doesn't mean anything. I'm not worried about food because I got a fridge full. And if I'm, when that runs out, I got a freezer full mm-hmm. and I got a pantry full, right. And I got a bank account. that has enough money to buy some more you know, food in it. If, if we lost our job today, I, I'd probably be good for quite a while. Um, then realizing, Oh yeah. When I carry out this Jesus ethic, it, it might very well mean I don't have any food. So what am I going to do?
0: I, you know, I think I realized that for the first time when the pandemic started, Mm. how like you're just not supposed to go out of your house for a couple of weeks in California, we started really early on this. And so it's like, yeah, I literally could not leave the house and we could pretty much make whatever we wanted to make because of of what we had in the pantry and the freezer and the fridge. And if that's a problem, Hey, you know, you could, that's when like, you know, the, uh, the, the grub hub and all that stuff really became popular. It's like, Oh, I don't want to go to Costco. So I could pay someone to go to Costco for me.
1: Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause of COVID I'm not going to go to the shopping. So I'll let somebody yeah. else do it. Yeah. And, and it was good for them because they needed to work. Mm-hmm. And so a win-win cost me a few bucks extra, but I'm helping yep. somebody else out and I'm not exposing myself and my family. All great. But the reality of that is like, yeah, wait a second. So uh, in the middle of this chapter, Jesus tells a parable. Verse 16 uh, says the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Come, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, if we look at this parable carefully the, the man was actually making good business decisions. I know it's from worldly wisdom perspective, mm-hmm. he's doing good things, but what he forgot was God. And the God part of it is I told you to take care of those who have needs. And so give that food away. Well, what, what am I going to do for next year for my retirement? Why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about clothes? I think that's the context that we need to understand this parable and, and this whole chapter in.
0: All right. So let's get into chapter 13. Then you have this healing of the woman on the Sabbath. So this is chapter 13 verses 10 through 17. And this seems to distinguish between Jesus's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. Uh, So the religious leaders, they're, they're really angry, angered because there are six days in which, you know, work should be done. You see that in, in verse 14. Uh, So what does the Sabbath mean for us today? Especially like that's a Jewish context. We're not, Uh, what's the correlation there? How do we even apply that? It's like, oh, that obviously doesn't count for us. Let's move on Gentiles.
1: So if you recall back when we discussed the gospel in Matthew, we mentioned the fact that the 10 commandments were were centered around justice. They were sent to protect the marginalized and the oppressed. The King who murders somebody to take his land and steal his land, thou shalt not murder the law about thou shalt not murder, you didn't even have to have a law if some poor guy murdered some noble person, because the noble person's family would make sure that poor poor Mm -hmm. person paid for it. The idea of thou shalt not work on the Sabbath day was to protect the laborers, not the owner of the the field. I mean, obviously the laborers are the ones who want a day off. The owners of the field say, no, I want you to work every day Mm because I make more money that way. So once we understand the fact that the Sabbath and the laws themselves are circulating around justice, remember in Luke chapter four, Jesus says, I came to to bring release to those who are, who are captive and open the eyes of the blind and, and all that stuff about justice. So what he does here is he says look the Sabbath was made as a day to release people from work and from captivity and from ba- from bondage. It's not a day for saying you can't do this and you can't do that and you should do this and you shouldn't do this. It's a day of rest from your labor to protect those who are being oppressed from laborers. So if you're a laborer enjoy the day. Go to church, worship, that's great but Enjoy the day. Mm -hmm. And for me, by the way, like, you know, I don't have a lawn right now, but I I like to go outside and mow the lawn and do yard work. And that's just a day for me to kind of get away and rest and relax and resting and relaxing is doing yard work. That's fine.
0: For someone else, though, who like that, that just wrecks them. I hate doing that. That would not be good Sabbath. No, no,
1: no. Mm -hmm. It's a day for rest and and enjoyment and pleasure. And so that you're not oppressed and to release the people who are captives and being oppressed. Mm
0: -hmm. So we get into chapter 14 then, and the, you have verses 1 through 24, uh, all take place at a meal at the house of a Pharisee. So what is Luke doing here that he hasn't already addressed?
1: Yeah, well, again, it's important to remind ourselves then of, of what Luke has already addressed. Remember, most of the stories of Jesus and the gospel of Luke take place at meals. Mm-hmm. And as we discussed, there's two really important social considerations to kind of be aware of. First off was one, social status which was based on how a person was perceived by others. That was like central. And if you didn't have a certain status, you weren't even invited to the meal. And then where you sat at that meal, advertised to everyone where you were in the social ladder. Mm -hmm. So you didn't sit in front of this guy because you know full well he's better than you and you're going to be shamed by it when you have to move. But you did sit in front of that other person and because you're better than them and socially superior to them. Now, invitations, of course, were only to those who would, preserve that person's social status, the, the one who's hosting the meal. Invitations to the poor were just a waste because they couldn't pay you back. Uh, they couldn't reciprocate an idea of, uh, I invited you to a meal, now you owe me. So you're you're a person of honor, you bring honor to my meal and you're now in my debt because I invited you a meal. So that's why I invite you. The second thing to remind ourselves then, so the first is the social consideration. The second, of course, is this principle of reciprocity. And that is that gifts were never free. Mm-hmm. So Jesus uses this occasion of this meal then to speak against both of these practices. And he tells the guests when they come in, he says, for example, he says, recline at the last place, seek the least seat of honor. And then what happens, and we tend to think of this like as an act of humility, but he's not doing that. He's simply saying that let's put it this way. When we say, Oh, Jesus wants us to take the most humble seat. The focus of that statement is still me. It's still I. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm being humble by sitting here right now. And what Jesus is saying is no, take the humble seat because that means you're honoring somebody else. If we take the lowest seat, somebody else gets to move up. And that's the benefit and the blessing of it all. No idea. Well, eventually God will move us up at this eternal, but at this eternal banquet, that's fine, but it's not about gaining honor now by moving down so that somebody else can gain honor. Uh, and then of course we will be honored in eternity. To the guest, he's like, Don't worry about your honor and what have you. And then to the host, Jesus says, Hey, look, in verse 13, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. If you're listening to Jesus' day, you're like, why would I do that? Because again, A, they can't pay me back. So now I got no benefit out of this meeting, out of this dinner, because now I'm gonna have to pay for everybody to eat this food tonight. And I'm gonna have to buy myself dinner next week, too, because no one's inviting me to their house to eat off of their food. And secondly, inviting the poor, the, the crippled, the lame, and the blind doesn't bring me any honor. I'm, I'm sitting out with a bunch of low lowlifes. Why, why would I do that? And Jesus answers, even though they can't pay you now, you will be repaid, look what he says in verse 14, at the resurrection of the righteous. Ah, there you go. So he's speaking against these two particular customs and uh, illustrating it very, very well for us.
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I want to read something from chapter 4 to ask a question about where we're at now. So in chapter four, uh, verse 18 and 19, Jesus says, you know, regarding his mission, he says, uh, you know, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim um, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free. Those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So should we then read the stories and parables you know, with that verse kind of at its center, it, like yes, because uh, especially since that came before it, it's setting the trajectory yes. of all the stories he's going to be telling.
1: That's right. And remember when John the Baptist in chapter seven sent a delegation of Jesus to say, "Hey, are you the Christ?" Because he was in prison, he couldn't come himself. And Jesus answers, um, "Look at what you see: the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking again." And so he reiterates it in chapter seven also. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Luke chapter four begins his public ministry in the synagogue. And says, "This is why I came to fulfill this particular passage—to preach the gospel to the poor, release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed." And then it's reiterated with John the Baptist, and the message to him tells us, yeah, this is how we're supposed to read these stories." Now, go to the middle of Luke chapter Luke 18. Now, for example, and look at some stories, because again, we type tend to read these stories as though like they're detached in stories mm-hmm. that maybe talk about personal piety or, or personal character, for example. Luke 18 begins with a parable of the persistent widow. And it's this widow who's, who's just praying every single day. This is in verse two. There was a judge who didn't fear God and he didn't respect any person. And there's a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. And the judge was like, no, I don't want to do it. And he said to himself after a while, even though I don't fear God or respect per- people, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection unless she continually come to wear me out. And God said, hear what the unrighteous judge said, now shall God bring about justice for the sake of his elect who cry to him day and night, and he will delay no longer over them. We read this story as a parable about you should pray all the time and just keep persisting and asking God, and eventually he'll give you what you're asking for. Mm -hmm. But notice the fact that the context of the prayer is about a widow who's looking for justice Mm -hmm. against an opponent. And the judge is an unrighteous judge, and even he does it. It's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to give her what she needs just so she'll she'll let me go. And then God's response is, look, shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him? So the context is about doing justice for the sake of those who are oppressed. The next passage then is a parable, kind of a famous parable about the the Pharisee and the tax collector. Mm -hmm. Now, we haven't really talked about parables yet that much in our our podcast here, so let's comment uh, briefly about this. Parables were, they had a punch to them. They had a a wow factor. They had like, what? No, that like a a surprise ending. Like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. Mm -hmm.
0: The foil that happens at the end. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now, we don't experience that because for many of us, we've heard these parables so many times. Over
0: familiar with them.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know the Pharisees are the bad guys. And we know that this people, you know, the tax collectors, the good guys. Like, that's not the way they would have been thinking, though. The Pharisee would have been the epitome of a righteous person. And the Pharisee says, two men went up to the, to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee. Oh, he's the good guy. And there's a tax collector. Oh, bad scum of the earth. Like, you know, works for Rome. Bad dude. Boo, boo. And this, this is the way they're listening to this. And it says, the Pharisee stood and was praying uh, thus to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Oh, yeah, man. If I were him, I'd be so thankful too. Mm-hmm. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust or no, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax gatherer. Yeah, boo, boo, boo. I fast I just want to I
0: just want to include real quick the commentary you're giving this is the way it would have been understood in its yes. original context. Yeah, you're not making fun of this right now. No, no, this no. is the way it's heard.
1: That that exactly. Thank you very much. in case I, I wasn't clear already. Yeah. Thank you. I fast twice a week. Like, whoa. The only required fast is actually once a year. Hmm. So he does twice a week. I pay tithes of a tenth of all that I get, which is not required. You're only supposed to pay a tithe on certain things, like do you tithe the Christmas gift from grandma? I tithe on that too. All right. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away. Yeah, that's right. He, he's not even worthy to come near the temple. So don't even, don't even show up here. Right. Unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Yeah. He can't even pray properly. He probably wears a hat to church. Okay. Sorry. I just had to throw that in there. Uh, he was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Ugh, no way. There's no way, you know, not worthy. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself should be humbled. He who humbles himself should be exalted. And you're like, what? Hey, Jesus, come here. I think, I think I, did I mishear you? Because I think you meant to say mm-hmm. that guy went home justified, not this guy, but you said this guy, not that guy. No, I said it right. And like, uh, what? We so stopped. can
0: we talk about, or, or were you going to continue on in 18? Are we going to? Yeah. Because I, I think it is important just to lay a few other frameworks about parables, because that's just yeah. something we don't know what to do and how to read. So it's not only that there's going to be this shift that happens at the end, and it's usually going to be surrounding the cultural context of the time, right? Yeah. We just miss so much of it because Jesus is using everyday situations or something that could be plausible, and then he shifts it at the end. But what a, a parable is not, it's not an allegory. Because in an allegory, usually when you have a formal allegory, you have a one-to-one comparison of all these things. And I think a lot of times we we read these parables and we're trying to figure out all yeah, of the yeah. things and how they might match. Okay. Where well, it's the correspondence where no, it, it might just be a story and he's using the main characters as though they're the people who you would have identified with and, and something there is shifting around. So we don't want to overread these things, right? But we really need to make sure that we have a, a grasp of the context of the time and how the characters would have been perceived or whatever the background might be.
1: To pick up what you were saying there, if you take it as an allegory with a one-to-one correspondence, then God's an unrighteous judge.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: It's like, no, no. So yeah, there's an unrighteous judge. There's God. There's a woman who's pe- begging. And then there's, then there's us who are praying to God. Well, yeah, but God's not an unrighteous judge. The point of that is, if the unrighteous judge hears the persistent widow's prayers, and so will also will God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, these two stories, however, are going to be really significant for everything that comes after them in the next several chapters. So the first thing is this. We read these stories as like, oh, okay, well, the tax gatherer was humble, and we should also should be humble. We shouldn't exalt ourselves. But for Jesus, the tax gatherer recognized his acts of injustice towards others, Mm -hmm. it was an act a tax gatherer someone who rips people off and he commits acts of injustice the pharisee hadn't recognized that and didn't understand the fact that you you devour widows houses and first show make lengthy prayers he didn't recognize that that's the contrast it's not humility in the sake of being humble because humility wasn't a virtue in that culture Mm -hmm. now we also as i mentioned a, a little bit ago we read the story about the woman and think oh well you know we're just supposed to pray all the time but in the story she's represents the poor She's a widow and she's the marginalized and she's asking for justice from her opponent and the point of the story is she's being assured that she's going to receive it the pharisee then and the tax gatherer represent her opponents one represents one repents and the other does not Hmm. so understand these two stories in light of one another And then understand these two stories as they're going to play out as we continue on. For example, the very next thing that happens is the rich young ruler. Now we call him the rich young ruler. It's only in the gospel of Luke that we know that he's a a ruler. But nonetheless, the very next story then is a certain ruler questioned Jesus saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. And he says, you know the commandments? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept since I was a youth. And Jesus said, well, great. One thing you lack, sell all you possess, hmm. distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Now we think of this as like, well, this rich guy has to just go give away stuff, charity. And the point actually is no, give stuff back that you stole from people. Hmm. Because in this world, the only way you can become rich is at the expense of somebody else. Because mm-hmm. remember, you cannot, and I think in the gospel of Matthew, it says he went away grieved because he owned much land and you can't own much land unless you got it from somebody else and you're supposed to give the land back every seven every 49 years mm-hmm. you forgive debts every seven years give the land back every 49 years and jesus is simply saying go do uh, what the law requires you to do and give back what you took from other people and do justice so that they can have their economic status res- back to them their dignity restored and he's like oh no i not sure i want to do that so here's a man who says oh i've kept all these commandments and jesus answers no you haven't kept any of them hmm. because the law is predicated on doing acts of justice now again let's keep going because here we go it gets better the next story is we move down a little bit further of course the disciples are like hey jesus we left everything for you it's like okay excellent good job okay cool and then verse 35 there's a, a blind man approaching jerusalem uh, the, jesus was approaching jerusalem and there's a blind man there uh, named bartimaeus and he was begging And verse 37, and he's like, hey, what's going on? He hears the commotion. He's like, hey, what's going on? And verse 37, they said, Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, Bartimaeus, the blind guy, is the widow who kept crying out for justice against Mm -hmm. his opponents. And the people who are trying to stop him, Are those who are impeding his way. The story illustrates how people are trying to keep him from getting the justice that he desires, but he's persistent. And so what does he do? So Jesus says, what do you want? And the man says, I want to regain my sight, which was the passage you cited earlier, like Luke 4, he came to open the eyes of the blind, which is this larger context of doing these acts of justice. And Jesus said, great, your sight's been restored and you've been made well. And guess what he does? Verse 43. Immediately, he regained his sight, and he began following him. Hmm. The rich man was told, sell your possessions and give back to the poor. But he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't restore what he stole. He wouldn't restore what he took. And instead, he kept being an impediment. Bartimaeus has his, eye, his sight restored, and others were trying to impede him from getting justice. And once he gets his justice, what happens? He began following Jesus. Okay, now we're not done. Chapter 19, we have another story. Story of of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And guess what Zacchaeus, right? He's a tax collector. Mm -hmm. So immediately we're reminded the story of of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Zacchaeus was rich, it says, uh, end of verse two, he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, which reminds you of the blind guy Mm -hmm. who was trying to see Jesus, but he couldn't because he was blind. But Zacchaeus was too short. Because of the crowd, it says, he was unable because he was small in stature. So again, you have another story of the crowd inhibiting someone from seeing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Bartimaeus couldn't see him because he was blind, but the crowd tried to hinder him from speaking out and getting Jesus' attention. So he, he climbs up a sycamore tree. There's, there's, by the way, if you go to Jericho today, there's a sycamore tree in the center of a city square. And that's like, okay, whatever. That's the tree. Yeah, huh. It's good enough. It, it, whatever. It'll, it'll work. Do you
0: guys have to sing the song about him being a wee little man as well?
1: No, no, no. I, I, don't, I don't. Cause I don't <laughs> sing. People would like, no, I, I came all the way to Bethlehem and, and to Jerusalem and Jericho and to hear you sing. No, you've ruined my trip. I, I nice. thought the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. You proved <laughs> it wrong. Jesus. He looked up and saw and said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. So remember in chapter 15, the Pharisees and, and Sadducees were saying, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And there you go. I must eat at your house. And he hurried and came and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, which what they did in chapter 15, they were grumbling. So he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said, Lord, behold, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Hmm there you go see the story of the pharisee and the tax collector the tax collector says i'm not worthy i'm sorry i i repent and zacchaeus says i'm sorry i repent that's the point of the story and if i've defrauded anyone i'll give back four times which is more than what the law requires he's restoring back what he's defrauded and that's what the rich man wouldn't do so we keep looking at these stories like independent little stories about oh about humility about selling your possessions and you know following jesus but they have this larger story of actually doing acts of justice for the poor and the oppressed. And again, I just, I, my mind keeps exploding and thinking, what is Theophilus thinking? Mm-hmm. What's he doing in Rome? What's he thinking right now? Like, how do I do this? Cause if I do this, I lose my status. I lose my place in culture. And again, they didn't all lose their status. They didn't all lose their place in culture. So he's reckoning, how do I do this? See, I don't think that we look at, listen to this as Americans, for those of us in America going, I'm really well off and Rob and Vinny seem to be telling me I have to go sell everything even to the poor. No, not at all. Not the case because not all the disciples do that. Mm-hmm. There were wealthy women following Jesus mm-hmm. around, caring for his needs, members of Herod's household. But we if we defrauded people, if we, if we took advantage of somebody else or if we gained at the expense of somebody else. And I think our conversation next week with Lisa, Sharon Harper is going to challenge us to think about this. Hey, have I gained because somebody else lost? Mm -hmm. And if so, then what do i do with that and i'm not saying i don't think neither one of us are going to try to give an answer to that mm-hmm. or what that answer might be i think we need to start asking those questions though yeah and then i think next week our conversation with lisa sharon harper will will probably begin to provide some thoughts as to how to go about answering it and maybe you don't agree with what with what her answers might be that that's fine but we'll, let's at least ask those questions there so
0: you've you've talked about going back to 9 and 10 chapters 9 and 10 let's yeah. let's do that uh, okay. uh, now cuz you know, Luke really does have this missional F- emphasis yeah. in his writings, and he knows that he's going to write the book of Acts, <laughs> which is it's all missional, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That's the point of the book of Acts. He's a Gentile, uh, Luke is, so he's concerned with the mission to the Roman world and to the Gentile world. So, how does this actually play out in the Luke narrative, then the okay. Gospel of Luke?
1: Yeah, so this is going to be fun. So I'm, if you didn't have fun with the last section, I did. Sorry that you didn't, but I did. <laughs> How these stories all weave together around these central themes. So let's go to Luke chapter nine uh, for one, and you'll see that Jesus sends out the twelve, and it says uh, he sends out the twelve, and he tells them in verse three, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag uh, nor bread nor money, and don't even t- have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there and take leave. Uh, and I'm sorry, and take your leave from there. And as, for, as for those who don't receive you, as you go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testament against them. All right. So they go out and they do this. So the point of that is don't take any provisions. If Whatever house you go into, don't go, hey, if the next guy offers me a better house, I'll take that. Just stay in whatever house, the first one you get into. Don't move to house to house to get better accommodations. And if you're not welcome, that's fine. Just, you know, shake off the dust of your feet, which is ridding yourself of defilement, and then go off into the next place. All right. Now, chapter 10. He tells again a story of the disciples being sent out. You're like, well, I thought he already kind of did that. What's going on? Well, now it says in verse one, it says the Lord appointed 70 others and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every city uh, and place where he himself was going to come. So again, he's sending out another group and it seems to indicate that this is not the same group that he sent out before. He sent out 70 others. And there's some textual variation, by the way, in terms of whether this is 70 or 72. Most of your Bibles will say 70 with a little footnote on 72. And I'm and this not gonna... is what we've
0: talked about before with what's called textual criticism, yeah. where there's just manuscript issues. You're always going to have a footnote that mentions something about this. This is not like a new problem that's wrecking the validity right. of the Bible or anything.
1: Yeah. So there's all kinds of passages where there's textual discrepancies there, mm-hmm. but it's really obvious what the original one has. But every once in a while, we get to a place like this where we're just not quite completely certain. And when we're not certain, then the translators will often put a footnote in your Bible and Mm -hmm. say, hey, by the way, some manuscripts say this. you know, sometimes it's less certain or more certain. Usually it's pretty easy to figure it out. Uh, And what you, one of the major rules that you use is to figure out, okay, which one makes the most sense as being the original one that somebody changed to something else. Mm -hmm. So one way of going is, well, 70 is a really good number. It's a number in the Bible that's used a number of times. Uh, for the nations of the world in the book of genesis in genesis Mm -hmm. chapter 10 there's 70 nations so uh, we can understand why somebody would change 72 to 70 because that makes more sense and that that might be the way it might go uh, and then you'd favor the number 72. the problem actually is this is in the greek translation of the old testament Mm -hmm. the number of nations is 72. Mm. and so in both cases the number 70 represents the hebrew version of genesis 10 the number of nations And 72 represents the number of nations in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So we can understand why somebody would change it from 70 to 72, or why somebody would change it from 72 to 70. Mm -hmm. But the point actually is, either way, they understood that this was talking about the number of the nations of the world. And here's what's happening. He sends the 12 disciples out because that's the number of the tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. And now he's saying out the number of the nations of the world, the two sendings, just like the two feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000 in Mark's gospel. And they picked up 12 baskets and 7 baskets of bread, as we discussed. So also here, the sending of the 12 to Israel and sending of the 70 to the nations. So it's kind of a, a preview in some, with symbolic use of numbers of the Gentile mission to the nations. So that's the idea of the, of the number, that, of, of what's happening. But notice as the story continues, it says this. He says in verse 3, go your way, and Luke, 10, Luke 10, verse 3. Go your ways and behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, but carry no purse, no bag, no shoes and greet no one on their way. And whenever you enter a house, say peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there. Your peace will be upon him. And if not, it will return to you. And if you stay in that house, eat and drink whatever they give you for the labor is worthy of his wages. Don't keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what's set before you and heal those who are in it and say the kingdom of God has come near. Point of that is, it's pretty similar, maybe a little bit more expanded than what we saw in chapter nine. In both cases, they're told, take no provisions. Don't worry about a bag or purse or shoes. God's going to provide for your needs. If they bless you, they'll be blessed. If they curse, they'll be cursed, which reminds you, of course, of Genesis chapter 12. Uh, I think this is Genesis 12, one, uh, verses 1, two, th- 1, 2, and 3, that God's people are going to be recept- uh, received and blessed. And if God's people are not going to be received, then they're going to be cursed. Because how you receive God's people is how you receive God himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's happening there.
0: You should write a book about that.
1: I th- that'd be a good idea. Very good. <laughs> Uh, the point of that then is, is this, of course, is when you go out there, say the kingdom of God has come near. Uh, if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet, all that good stuff there. The 70 returns say the demons have, have submitted our name. We already discussed that. Now, what's happening then is this, is Jesus, I think, by the way, this is a good model of discipleship. And that is, you got to have, allow your people to do the job themselves someday while the mentor's still in town. And then they come back to Jesus and say, hey, this worked and this didn't work. And You know, we couldn't cast out these demons. How come Jesus, you know, and while Jesus is still there, it's, it's a, it's an apprenticeship. He's giving them the opportunity to, to practice and and to do the mission. And it's a foretaste, of course, as we said, the, the journey to Jerusalem is about the destination about Jerusalem and about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to die. And then the spirit's going to come and they're going to go out in this Gentile mission. Hmm. Now let's turn to to Luke 22, Luke 22. So in Luke 22, we have Luke's version of kind of the Last Supper. And uh, verse 3 of Luke 22, verse 3, it says, Satan entered into Judas. So even at the Last Supper, we have this cosmic battle of Satan and the devil uh, invading in the kingdoms of the world against the kingdom of God. So just keep that in mind then. In verse 7, the first day of unleavened bread came, and which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And he says, go make provisions for that. In verse 14, they come down the hour to sit at the table. He says, look, I've wanted to do this for a long time. Before I suffer with you, I want to eat the Passover. Verse uh, 17, he says, take this cup and share it among yourselves. I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, and from now on until the kingdom of God come. Verse 19, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup that is poured out for you for the the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one who's betraying me is is with me at the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as, as it has been determined, but what of that man by whom it is betrayed? And they began discussing among themselves, which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. No problem. We, we're used to this passage. We're familiar with it. He gives the Last Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. Okay, that's all cool. Great. The very next verse, which is found at a different location in Matthew and Mark's gospel, but Luke places it here. There arose a dispute as to which one of them was the greatest and we discussed it's possibly because peter's not sitting next to jesus and he should be so hey guys i'm still better than you even if i'm not sitting at the seat of maybe that's what's going on but i think it's funny by the way you know hey guys i'm gonna go to, i'm gonna die this is my body you know, take it need it it's my blood you know i'm better sorry about that just, just a moment i am totally better than you no look look where i'm sitting and look where you're sitting let's mm. I, we don't need to No, i am i, I walked on the water you sunk when you walked in the water dude you were afraid of the, and Jesus like, hey, guys, I'm going to die. It's my blood. Jesus, I'm sorry to hear that, but we're having a dispute here for a second. It's kind of interesting the way that Luke has put this dispute right after the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we go. And Jesus yes. answers them and says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest, as a leader, as a servant. For who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It's not the one who reclines, but I'm the one among you who serves. Mm -hmm. Remember, of course, in John's gospel, he's just washed their feet. Note that Jesus's answer is in this context of what we've been saying the gospel of Luke is all about. Namely, the kingdoms of the world versus the kingdom of God. So they call fire down from heaven and devour. That's, that, that's what we're going to do, Jesus. We're going to call fire down from heaven. No, that's the way the kings of the world do things, guys. They use power. They use manipulation. They step on the little guy. They use military might. They use deception. They use these things. And remember, Satan has already entered into Judas, and Satan is the god of this age or the god of this world. So it's this cosmic battle. Jesus' answer is, in my kingdom, we lay down our lives for the sake of the other." which is what I think the book of Revelation is ultimately getting at. The nations are redeemed because the God's people laid down their lives just like Jesus laid down his life. And that's the mm. two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. This is what we do. We, we lay down our lives for the sake of the nations there. And we're differently. All right Now let's continue on. Verse 28. And you are those who stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. Mm so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Ah, it's about you guys becoming kings or maybe say kings and queens, which is what Adam and Eve were created to do, to rule over the earth and subdue it, but to rule as God rules, not as the nations rule. Mm-hmm. And the nations rule by power, but Jesus's kingdom rules by suffering and by laying down their life for the sake of the other. So it's all this kingdom language again, right? Simon, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Ah, but the Greek word for you is plural.
0: Mm, So you all.
1: That's right. Mm -hmm. So he's addressing Simon, as we said before, because Peter's the leader of the game. You address him. That's just the way it works. And Jesus is not saying the social totem pole or the social ladder is inherently wrong. It's just leads to injustices. Mm -hmm. So sure, Peter, you're number one, and therefore guess what you do? You lay down your life for the sake of everybody else. That's just the way it works. But Simon, Satan is demanding permission to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you, verse 32, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again or when you've repented, and so now he's talking to Peter specifically, because we know the story of what's going to happen. Strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you, and I'm ready to go to death. (laughs) And Jesus said, "Uh, I say, Peter, the cock will not crow until you've denied me three times that you know me. And then he said to them, so now he's speaking to all the disciples, Mm -hmm. when I sent you out without purse and bag, ah, that was chapter 9 and chapter 10, remember? He sent the 12 out and and the 70 out. So again, that story, whatever happened then was important. So I sent you out without purse and without bag and without sandals. You didn't lack anything, did you? And I said, no, nothing. And he said, well, now, and by the way, the Greek is emphatic, Hmm. but now. Mm -hmm. And the word for but is like, there's two Greek words that can mean but, and it's it's an emphatic one. Like, well, now things are different, guys. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really emphatic statement in the Greek. He says, but now let him who has a purse take it along. Likewise, also a bag. Let him who has a sword, uh, who has no sword, sell your robe and buy one. For I tell you that which is written must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with transgressors for that, which refers to me as its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. Now, of course the question that we have to ask, right, is what do we, you know, what do we do with the sword thing? Mm -hmm. And my answer to that is it's hyperbole. It has to be hyperbole. It has to be an exaggeration to make an effect. He's saying, look, you didn't lack anything before. Did you? Right? No. Well now, take a bag and take a purse and have some money. I know it's when I sent you out earlier, I sent you out amongst the tribes of Israel. And even though we sent 70 out symbolizing the nations, they were still going amongst the tribes of Israel. And Jesus was pretty well liked. I mean, he, he healed that person and he raised that, that widow's son from the dead and he fed the 5,000. And you know, they were preaching a pretty good message. And if anyone doesn't receive, you just shake the dust off your feet and go to the next city. Mm-hmm. No problems but now he's in Jerusalem and now it's going to be made explicit. Are you the Christ? Yes, I am. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not like the world's kingdoms. It's different. Well, we don't want a king like that. We want a king like Caesar. We have no other king, but Caesar, they tell, they tell Pilate. Yeah. You want a king like that. That's like Solomon, David's problem, right? They want a king like the kings of the world do. And Jesus answers, well, I'm not going to give that kind of kingdom. In fact, I'm going to love Rome too. I'm going to lay down my life for the sake of Rome. Your enemy is the devil. As we said, like, I think episode number one in our Mark study, it's the devil. It's not Mm -hmm. Rome. Oh, look, I sent you out before and it was safe. You didn't need to take a bag or purse. Now, if you don't have, if you have a robe, sell it and go buy a sword. Well, you wouldn't actually not sell your robe. There's no way he's telling you to sell your robe. That's your bedding at night. So Mm -hmm. it's clearly hyperbole. And we also have the fact that They say, hey, Lord, we have two swords. And like, it is enough. And what we don't know, and we can't tell because it's script, it's written. Was that a statement of exasperation? Was he like, that isn't that? Okay, that you guys still don't get it, do you? Mm -hmm. I tend to think that's what Jesus meant by it is enough. Because if he's telling them to buy swords, two swords is not enough to defend all of them. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And the fact that later on that night, they use one of those swords to hack off Malchus's ear and Jesus heals the guy. Mm -hmm. He says, put them away. And he tells Pilate, my kingdom is none of this world. If I did, my men would come fighting. So clearly he doesn't mean for them to actually buy swords. But what he's saying is the first time you went out, it wasn't too bad. But now, guess what? It's going to be difficult and uh, it's going to cost you something. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's the message to us too. It's going to be difficult. It's going to cost you something.
0: All right. So let me ask you. Than this rob okay and this is kind of a tough question to ask because i don't think you're going to give the answer then uh that would affirm maybe a popular interpretation of this passage especially okay. when All it comes right. to the sword question because oftentimes what i will hear from friends and just folks in the public square especially folks who are very advocate second amendment folks mm-hmm. but who are christians and this isn't necessarily like this isn't giving commentary on the second amendment on it on if it is a Christian or not, like that's a different conversation, Uh, but there is a second amendment in America that gives people the right to bear arms. Oftentimes Christians are very, they they don't know what to do with that because the majority of the gospels, what you see with Jesus is that Jesus is, is, seems to be anti this. (laughs) He would, he seems to be an anti gun Jesus. You know, they didn't have guns, but then you have this passage in which Jesus says, hey, no, go sell your robe and buy a sword. And so this becomes that passage of oftentimes where it's like, see, Jesus wants you to be able to protect yourself, just like the second amendment. It's, it's a biblical Jesus concept. Is that the proper leap to make or the, the proper connection to make between a sword and the second amendment now and giving you know the Christian a, the modern Christian a justification to do that? Or is it just, I don't know, what, what would you do with that?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a tough question. And let's recognize the fact that Christians are on both sides of this issue. I'm going to stop with the side of saying there's no way you can get um, guns from this passage or bearing arms from this passage or self-defense from this passage. Uh, It has nothing to do with that. First off, the context is when I sent you out in chapter nine, chapter 10, it was easy. You didn't have to have a bag or money, but now you need to. Because what I'm sending you out now, and even actually in chapter 10, it says, I'm sending out a sheep among wolves, mm-hmm. but don't take a money or take a bag. You'll be okay. But now, no, you're going out as monks wolves. Mm. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. The ethic of the kingdom, of course, is that we lay down our lives for the sake of the other. Mm-hmm. And you have no instance in the New Testament of the disciples defending themselves. The only example, of course, is at the arrest in the garden, which is an illustration of they still don't understand the nature of the kingdom. And Jesus heals the man's ear. Mm-hmm. The whole point of it is be ready for hardship and sacrifice and be prepared for what's what's ahead. I f- personally find no basis for the use of violence as a response to violence. Mm-hmm. Now that, that there's so much, there's so much to unpack there, right? Mm -hmm. number one for a woman who's being abused um god gave you a loud voice scream really loud and kick and fight and get out of there because yeah it's wrong it's a crime it's an injustice okay and to protect yourself in that sense and don't put yourself back in that situation but i don't think this is at all what jesus is talking about here i think i do think jesus was was exaggerating was using hyperbole there's no way they would have sold their tunic and bought a sword because that's your outer garment that you use for your bedding at night. There's no way they would have taken that literally. And the fact that when they did use the sword, Jesus healed the guy's ear. And the fact that and I'm just kind of repeating myself again, but he said, my kingdom is not of this world if, if it were my servants would be fighting. So I don't, I just don't find any basis for that at all. I find the gospel of um, love is greater love has no man than this than a man laid down his life for his friends. And that that is what the church is called to do is to lay down their lives for the sake of the others. And I think that's the way I would understand the text. And mm-hmm. then I would just wouldn't get into the politics of it too much right now. I think that'd be a good conversa- I'm not it, a and conversation. And that's not, our, that's not our point. Like, let's, yeah, let's like, have it at some point. Like that's mind.
0: an important conversation, yeah. but for us in this context, it's trying to figure out what is the text saying? Yeah. yeah. Like that's what, that's what we're yeah, driving. Exactly.
1: At. And I hope, mm-hmm. I hope I answered that. Yeah.
0: Wow. So, so. We have finished Luke, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: We're, we're done with this, man. Obviously, John is the next book in the Bible. So is that where we're going next?
1: Yeah. So we've left out of Matthew, Mark, and even Luke now. We've kind of left out the resurrection and, and that stuff, mm-hmm. right? So uh, we're going to get there in John. So help me. What, yeah, we're going to get there. And we've kind of looked at Luke with an eye on Acts. And so we know that there's this mission coming. We know that there's this Gentile mission coming. We know that there's this Holy Spirit coming. And we're actually gonna see that in John first, and then we'll see it in Acts. And so, mm-hmm. what we're gonna stress now, and I'll, I'll kind of say this a couple of teasers this way. Number one, the Gospel of John, this is kind of a teaser that I'll try to defend in our studies of the Gospel of John, is as much about the Holy Spirit as it is about Jesus.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's why I, I kind of chuckle when you start off again tonight with, uh, you know, people always say we started the Gospel of John first for the mm-hmm. new believers. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, if it's about the coming of the Spirit. Mm-hmm ultimately empower and then empowering the disciples and uh, of course us as well to go out on mission so the gospel of john is really really missional more so even than matthew mark and luke might be and i think that's what john's doing writing 30 or so years after matthew mark and luke mm-hmm. so we'll pick that theme up there in the gospel of john and that's gonna be really exciting we're gonna have a couple of guests in, in in the meantime also as well i think we need to process more now this question of justice and the oppressed and having gained an advantage at the expense of somebody else, what do we do with that? Because I think America, uh, for those of us as Americans, we were established by land that was somebody else's land, mm-hmm. and I think what we did to the indigenous peoples of this country it was an injustice, and we became prosperous at their expense. And then I think we also have to deal with the issue of slavery and racism, and it's not just people of uh, blacks, uh, but it's also uh, Asians, Chinese. Uh, the Japanese, what mm-hmm. we did with them, the, the railroads that were built to the back of the Japanese. I think we have we have a history of where we've profited at the expense of somebody else and what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lisa Sharon Harper is going to kind of give her sp- perspective on that and mm-hmm. that'll be something for us to chew on. Uh, and uh, then we're going to bring in Warren Carter, who's just an expert on Rome and biblical history. And we're going to really, okay, we've been arguing, you know, Vinny and I, we've been arguing that Matthew, Mark and Luke and even John a little bit is describing the kingdom of God against the empire. And I don't think it's against colonialism, though I don't think colonialism is a good thing. I think it's against the imperialism. And so Warren Carter is going to help us unpack that also. So we have mm. some really exciting guests and some excellent episodes coming up. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah,
0: this is going to be great. Hopefully it's been great to you. keep reading through the text. Hopefully it's given you a new perspective and continue listening and share, like we've said before, please Please leave reviews. I haven't checked uh, Apple recently. I'm going to check that out, but please leave reviews uh, on the the podcast apps, Uh, you know, like it and review. And that helps this get in the algorithm. It helps more people uh, see the podcast as well. So, all right, guys, have a great week. We will see, see everyone. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.